The world of construction is transforming before our eyes. How we design, plan, quantify and build is changing day to day. But it's never been so easy to connect, share and bring people together. Our industry is reshaping. So how do we develop relationships? How do we overcome our fears? How do we generate business? And how do we ultimately become the best version of ourselves? This is Measured, I'm McDonaghy, and my guest today is... On today's episode of Measured, we are joined by Matthew Mackey. Matthew has over 20 years experience working within construction and the built environment throughout Australia and the United Kingdom. Hailing from a quantity surveying background, Matthew is the National Director of Cost and Commercial at Arcadis, a global engineering and project management consultancy. He's also the chair and founder of Brisbane Property Leaders, a specialist networking group within the property and construction industry here in Queensland. Matthew is a big champion for change within our industry. And we are super excited to have him on the show. Well, thank you for being on the show, Matthew. How are you? Yeah, I'm good, thank you. It's my pleasure to be here. Although I think you've picked me up just a little bit. Too, <laughs> so I hope I can do it justice. No, that, that, that's all good. Well, we'll, we'll, we'll crack in, into the show. So we believe you can't improve what you don't measure, Matthew. So how do you measure success? Well, being, you know, as you said, hailing from a QS background, I love spreadsheets <laughs> and everything we, particularly since I started the, um, the role at, at Arcadis where we're building effectively a new QS offering in the market, everything that we do gets measured from, you know, the clients we're going after, the, sector, the sectors that we're trying to be dominant in, the sectors we want to target, the clients we're after, the revenue, how projects are performing. There's a spreadsheet for it somewhere that turns into another spreadsheet. And, and that's how we're measuring ourselves in terms of like year on year. It's uh, when we give our we give quarterly updates to to everyone on the team to like, know how we're tracking, and everything tracks back to what we said right at the start in terms of the plan, where we are on that plan, how did it compare to last year, what's different. So, and it keeps um, it keeps juices flowing to a certain extent. It keeps mm-hmm. everyone kind of excited and particularly informed. And yeah, I'm a big believer. If you're not tracking what you're doing, if you're not seeing where the improvements are, and whether that's through a business plan or even through your project delivery and, and cost planning and understanding where things have changed and understanding how the market's changing and keeping abreast of all of that, how can you possibly improve what you do on a day-to-day basis? Mm-hmm. And that's becoming more and more prevalent as things move more into that digital space and innovation, which as an industry, we seem to have been talking about and challenging ourselves on forever in a day, but it's really only in the last two or three years that I think there's been real strides. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and particularly what, what we're doing is that we've really, we're trying to really push the envelope in that digital space as well. And uh, and it all comes down to that, how you measure stuff and and, uh, and the kind of metrics you put in place. And we're finding particularly, sorry, I'm digressing a little bit, but when you, when you start looking at the digital stuff and you think, right, this is the goal, this is what we want to try and get to. And it, probably seems very, very linear and you know what the improvements are. It's only when you actually start getting into the detail and understanding what your innovation could actually achieve. Mm-hmm. You start finding all this other stuff. It's like, yep. oh, we never considered that. And then you find other measures you can have in and other bits of insights and other bits of analysis, which actually end up getting free without the additional effort because you're, you're building the innovation in. 
and that's what's really exciting. So, um, so yeah, I'm I'm a big advocate of uh, what gets measured gets in you know gets improved. So when you talk about the, the digital space, Matthew, have you noticed that a huge change within the industry over the last 12 months with, with COVID? Yeah, I mean, I can only really talk from, from personal experience. And, uh, and I think there's, there's a probably a lack of understanding of innovation across the industry in terms of what innovation can mean. But with co- looking at COVID in particular, where there's obviously been a phenomenal amount of people all working from home, Businesses, particularly the smaller businesses that may not have embraced, you know, working from home and flexible working policies, suddenly had to, and therefore there was lots of investment in like Zoom and Teams and, and all that kind of thing. And and people think that's become innovation. That's been the, the disruption, and that's how they've responded to it. And that's that's part of it. Understanding that you can work flexibly, understanding that for a large part you can work from almost anywhere to an extent, mm-hmm. has been a big. I think cultural shift within the industry, particularly from the consultancy side, but that's only you know one side of the coin. And you know, from from an Arcadis perspective, we are we're putting a lot of effort in terms of not just the five D bin digital twin stuff, which is what you know all our competitors will be talking about. But some will be further along on that journey than others. We're really trying to change how we operate as QSs and trying to digitalize a lot of what we do to the point where we're building platforms, not just Power BI, but actual software applications, our clients, mm. all the information, all the cost plans and all the information that we give them, they can access online. And it's not just a Power BI dashboard. There's a lot more behind it. And it is an actual software application, which I think is the key difference. Because having worked at some of the larger consultancies across the world in both the UK and Australia, as an industry, you know, the QS profession, we're very good at saying we're doing a lot of stuff, but really we're not. Mm. Uh, there's a lot of uh, smoke and mirrors, as I like to call it. There, there's a lot in the shop window, but there's nothing in in the back. And uh, and there's a number of reasons for that. One, because there's a perceived level of investment in terms of both time and cost. It's all about delivering for the clients you've got right now. That's the focus. And that's absolutely fine because clients should always come first. But if you don't actually spend the time to do the investment, whether it's cultural, whether it's time investment, whether it's uh, you know, monetary investment you're never actually going to improve what you're doing uh, you're never actually going to get to that next level and it's a lot of those businesses who think they're driving it but are probably only just you know messing around the edges they're going to find themselves left behind at some point and running to try and catch up yeah no i i agree totally and i'm really keen to explore a little bit more of that with you for further into the show but i guess sort of take, taking it back a little bit matthew how did you get involved in in, in construction what you know what, what was the oh, reason that you got become a QS? Right. Okay. This is probably one of the least inspiring stories that you'll hear. And, and, <laughs> uh, and I've, I've been very, very fortunate because I decided to go down a particular path for no other reason that it was it would get me to university. And 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 I've kind of fell into it. And I've had some ups, I've had some downs, but I really enjoy what I do. So I think I've been very, very fortunate. I've ended up doing something that I do really enjoy. Nobody, well, nobody in their right mind wakes up in the morning thinking, you know what, I want to be a QS. Not yep. very many people have that goal in life. And there's usually some kind of influence of why they've ended up down that path. Now, my particular influence was I had nobody in my family who was from a construction background. Uh, I was finishing my A-levels in the UK, so well, it's equivalent of what, year 12 here. And, uh, and I, all I knew was that I wanted to go to university. And I was in the car with my mum. So I would have been about 18, something like that. Mm-hmm. I was in the car with my mum, and we were driving down a, a particularly... Some people will laugh at this, but I'm, I'm from a town called Bolton, which is not known for 
for being particularly salubrious, but I was we were at the the posh end of Bolton, let's say, yeah. driving down the street, and my mum said to me, "Said, you see some of these big detached houses here." Well, what, I know a few of them, and a few of them are quantity surveyors. Now, as it turns out, I don't think she knew anyone who was a quantity surveyor. Yeah. Um, but she was trying to say that, you know, this could be quite a you know, good-paying job. And I thought, all oh, right, okay. So went to universities and looking at courses, and I saw there was a QS degree. And I thought, well, at least it's a vocational thing, and at least I'll have a job at the end of it, rather than mm-hmm. going for something that doesn't necessarily lead to a job. And I also saw that the first three years of the course, or the first two years of the course, also tapped on with the building surveys and the construction project managers as well. So I thought, well, if I don't like QS, mm-hmm. then I could flip onto one of those other courses and I've not lost any time. And then I did a year out, which was in industry. I worked for a contractor for 12 months in Manchester and absolutely loved, stressed as hell, but absolutely loved it. Yep. Um, and at that point, I was thinking, and it was, it was weird, when I was on my year out, I kind of, that's when it all, the, the building books kind of fell into place. Mm-hmm. Because while you're at university, you, they teach you bits about contract, they teach you bits about measurement, they teach you about construction technology and, and cost planning and all that kind of thing. But you don't understand how it all kind of fits together. It's only on my year out that mm-hmm. I kind of thought, ah, that's what they're getting at. Yeah. You actually get to see it in the process. Yeah. And I think you, my university was, it was not particularly good at showing where things were in the process. Mm-hmm. And then from there, I um, I graduated, uh, got a 2-1 and applied for jobs, applied for more jobs down in London than I did in Manchester, and had about five or six job offers for, for graduate positions. And that's kind of where it started and, you know, moved down to London. First time I'd left home and was down in London for five, six years. And, yeah, just kind of have grown into it. My, track, my, you know, my, my, my career has, has moved on. I was uh, I was at Gannon Theobald in London for five, six years, got to, like, a, a senior QS position. Then I moved across, funnily enough, to Arcadis. In, in Manchester, and I run, it was actually a company called AYH, but the day that I joined them, which I remember very, very clearly, first of all was 2005, I was joining AYH, and that was the day that Arcadis acquired AYH. Oh, yeah. So Arcadis from day one. Yeah. And then I, very quickly, I moved up to a director level in the Manchester office there, and then GFC hit, global financial crisis. It was all a bit grim. We went from an office of 25 people down to about 11 of us, and we'd taken two or three pay cuts. Most of the team, you know, the team had been gutted. Lots of people had made redundant, which is what was happening at that time in the UK. And, and that's when I took the opportunity to um, decide to relocate to, to Australia, and that was 2010. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then came out to Brisbane. And, yeah, and then the, the next phase of my career started, if you like. That's awesome. I guess when you, when you were you know go, going through the, those early stages within your your, your career, Matthew, what, what were the sort of challenges that that, that you faced at the time? Obviously, it wasn't quite difficult to get a job if you had five offers straight off the bat. No, no it wasn't actually. It was actually quite. I'm actually surprised that at that time how easy it was to get a job. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I think it's a similar thing now in Australia actually because I don't think there are enough people coming at university either moving into QSing or have got a QS related degree. Yeah. So the one do are finding themselves snapped up pretty quickly mm-hmm. uh, by the larger firms who take on a number of graduates. But in, in terms of challenges, it's, you know, I'm, I think looking back, I've always been relatively ambitious and I was probably ambitious as a, as a grad. And with that ambition comes a little level of arrogance as well mm-hmm. and wanting to try and do more than perhaps what you're ready for. Uh, yep. You want to push yourself, you want to, you want to start doing bids, you want to start sitting in front of clients and, so and you, you, the partners are saying, nah, that you, you need to build your technical your, your technical ability up first. Yep. But you know, being young, even back then, it was like uh, you know, you, you, you kind of want it all made. 
And I think the, the biggest challenge I had, I ended up working on a £10 million environmental uh, energy development, uh, housing development in, um, in London called uh, Beddington Zero Energy Development, my first project. And it was going really, really well. And, and I realised after a bit, I thought, I'm running this on my own. Mm. I'm like, I've got like a year, year, two years experience. I'm running it. I'm responsible for a $10 million project. And it scared the crap out of me. Yeah. <laughs> I even went to my partner and said, I just feel completely isolated here. I, mm. I need some support. And I was right to be scared because I did end up making a mistake. And it was a mistake that was compounded by the client, but I made the mistake to start with just in terms of forecasting. And that wasn't even the big problem. The problem was is that I found the mistake a number of weeks afterwards and I tried to hide it. Oh, no. It, which just compounded the problem even more. Yeah. And that, so when it became clear, when it obviously became a big issue, you know, then there's a big, there's a big inquest and people are trying to find out and I came clean. And, yeah, that was probably the worst three or four months of my career. Uh, and I've had, I've had some down since then, but not as bad as that. And, it, and, <laughs> and I think that's, that's what made me to a certain extent. Mm. Um, you've got the, the, I had the whole fight or flight thing going on. I was thinking, shall I just get out of here? Because I was, you know, I've, you know, under a lot of pressure. I was mm-hmm. bollocked quite a lot. And yeah, had some really, really angry senior people within the business. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't because of the mistake, because I tried to hide the mistake. Yeah. And yeah, and I, and I got my way through that. And I stayed with the business for another two, three years. I got my RICS, got my APC, and that ended up getting promoted. So we can kind of work through it. Mm-hmm. And um, I did have a conversation at one point with one of my, um, with one of my uh, performance reviews. And uh, the guy who was my boss, he said they had considered whether they should let me go or not, mm-hmm. which was the real eye-opener for me. It was like, oh, crap. I knew it was serious, but this is really serious. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's bloody awful. And I'm glad I stuck with it because that really made me in terms of the QS that I became and just that, you know, having that better attention to detail and understanding how you're communicating things to the client. And when you make a mistake, fixing it, but coming mm-hmm. clean rather yep. than trying to hide it. That I still, I mean, that was how long ago. And we're talking about the you know, best part of 18, 19 years ago now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I still remember those, you know, the, the lessons that that. Oh, for sure. Me. But that, that, that's it. It's like, think, think, as you said, things like that, the adversity that you go through, that they, they, they create who, who you are and what you become in, in, in many ways. And, and I think certainly a lot of people probably during that, 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 type, that, that type of scenario may have hit it and, and tried to leave or, or do some, you know, and, and move on. So it's a credit that you stayed and ended up being promoted, which shows that how much that they actually thought of you. But I guess um, when, when, you were, when you were starting off, off your career, was it difficult? Did you have like a mentor or anyone sort of who, who was guiding you, guiding you through the ranks or anything like that, Matthew? Yeah, well, I, again, I think I was pretty fortunate because we were working in like a, a Garner Theobald in London. They split all the graduates out into in, into little teams. So we were all, the graduates were all, all kind of one cohort. So I'm still connected and friends with, uh, or more probably more acquaintances now with everybody who I kind of grew up with mm-hmm. uh, in, in, in terms of that graduate program. But we were split into this small team, which we had a, a young, uh, relatively young uh, associate director who was moving through to partner. He had a couple of seniors below him. And there was like three or four of us who were grabbed in his team. It was a relatively young, you know, relatively dynamic team, uh, just because of the age and, and, and the passion within it. There was nobody there who was like, like over 50 in the team. It was like mm-hmm. the whole team was like, the, like, I think he was at the time probably about 
34, 35, and mm-hmm. everyone was like, everyone else was kind of under 30. So everyone kind of worked really well together because yeah. of that, um, you know, because of that closeness in, term, in terms of age and experience. So he was my mentor, and but obviously support from the rest of the team. I suppose I had a bit of adversity in the very fact that everybody in the team were all from in and around London, mm-hmm. uh, and I was the, what they referred to as the token northern monkey. Oh, um, so, so it, it, it's, it wasn't racism, but it, it was probably the it, regionalism is probably the best way to put it. <laughs> uh, but, you know, that, uh, so there's a lot of banter and that kind of thing. Yeah, so, so no one clear mentor. And I think, you know, when we talk about mentoring now, I know you and I have had conversations about it. Mentoring now is a bit of a different thing. And mm. um, when I was a grad, your mentor was usually your line manager, mm-hmm. uh, which is fine. But I think more people now, the way the industry is, it's an advantage to have somebody who's a mentor for you who's not necessarily in your business. Yeah. Uh, some side of the business, somebody who's got a different perspective rather than because the difficulty now is if you're a line manager within a business, you can mentor, but within the confines of the business and the vision and, and, and the strategy and the, and the organizational structure. Whereas if you've got a mentor who's outside of your business, then you've got that wider context and, and you're not as restricted. Yeah. Um, in, in terms of the advice that you may be given. Yeah, I agree. I've recently um, hooked up with a, with a mentor through the, where we're, we're a corporate sponsor of the Irish Chamber of Commerce. And I wasn't really too sure like what, 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 what I was, what I was going to get really, you know, yeah. but like from the first conversation, my mind was just blown away. I was like, this mm. is just a different level of thinking, you know? Yes. Um, yeah. So it's so, so worthwhile to, to find someone who's out of, out of your industry or maybe out of your team or office and, and, and yeah. try and utilize someone with, with different types of experience as well. But um, obviously you, you, you made a pretty bold move in, in, in moving from the UK to, to Australia. What, what were the, what, what have you noticed that the main differences in, in the QS function being in Australia compared to the UK? Well, I'm probably not going to make any friends with this. That's fine. What I found in, I mean, it probably took me, I mean, if you, if you just go and look, you know, look at my career path since coming to Australia, I did jump around a little bit. I mean, we're not talking about every six months, but clearly not as settled. And the part of the reason for that is that the industry is different over here. And it's not just about who's in the industry and who's strong in the industry and building connections. That's part of it. But it's also that the, the industry does operate differently here and probably the biggest different difference is that like if, if you take the example of the uk the qs is one of the first consultants to get appointed to a project mm-hmm. usually at the same time as the architect sometimes ahead of the architect and certainly before the pm here we can be a subconsultant to the architect or a subconsultant to the project manager mm. it's just a different way of thinking and we don't always get brought on for that full level of service we're in, in the uk nine times out of ten you get brought on for a feasibility concept cost planning all the way through to tender, tender analysis, mm-hmm. even running the tender in the UK, and then doing all the post-contract cost management afterwards. Here, you can get appointed just for doing cost planning, or maybe even just doing one cost plan rather than multiple cost plans. Mm-hmm. Like, like go all the way through the design, say, oh, we'll just get a QS to do a pre-tender estimate. But they've not checked that design all the way through. Mm. Here, the PM, and uh, sometimes you actually, but more, uh, more often the PM will run the procurement route, which is yeah. not really what's done in the UK or certainly wasn't when I was in the UK. It's usually the QS running it. It's all, it's all about money. It's all mm-hmm. about that connection to the contract, which is what the QS is. That's their expertise. And so there's a few things there which just took me by surprise is that we are, in, in terms of you know pecking order, we're in Australia, we're close to the bottom. 
Mm -hmm. Um, Whereas in the UK, we're one of the leading consultants on a project. There's another dynamic in Australia where a lot of clients seem to think that consultants, not just QSs, but consultants, we're all in it to make money. Mm. And the contractor, you know, the, the honest builder, the tradie, yeah, uh, they are. Uh, they're in it. You know, they're honest guys. They build this every day. They can tell us how much it costs mm. because they're honest and they're. You know, they build this every day. Why would I need a consultant to tell me how much is a good price when the builder can do that? What that attitude doesn't do. It creates this impression that the consultants are out for money and the builders aren't. But when you're paying your consultants like twenty, thirty, fifty, hundreds of thousands of dollars, and you can you're paying the contractor millions, mm. why would their vested interest be less? Yeah, consultant. So, so there's a weird kind of dynamic that's going on there, and then and it's a cultural thing within Australia. But I've got to a position now where I've seen the industry change quite a lot over the last ten years in Australia. There have been you know some things for worse, some things some things for the better, and those attitudes aren't necessarily as prevalent as they once were. And I think coming back to the QS, I think it's also because we as a profession have not been very good in Australia of articulating the value that we can bring. Mm. And I would and I would put some of that blame at the IQS and some of that blame at the RICS, particularly from an RICS perspective. I think they're focused too much on on valuation and and, and probably that if you like it, the the sexier consultancy services. And I don't think they've done that deliberately. I think that's just the way it's, the way it's evolved. I think the I the IAQS haven't done enough to generate the interest around the QS profession, the value that we can bring, and it's kind of left to the consultants to try and deliver that, which means there's no one from a QS perspective fighting our battle who's not a consultant trying to bid for work. Mm. And you want those kind of bodies to try and elevate the conversation. Yeah. Um, you just look at the UK and you look at, you know, there's government um, initiatives that come out about digital, about 5D BIM, digital twins, and they get consultants together to help advise them. Mm-hmm. And you know, there are QSs involved in that process. Yeah. Here. We are nowhere near those discussions, nine times out of ten. I found it exactly the same. So I recruited in the UK and in Ireland as well. And then I moved to New Zealand, recruited in New Zealand. And they all followed relatively the, the similar sort of model. Came to Australia and I was just, it was baffling to, 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 for me to see the, the, the QS function in such a demoted position. Yeah, uh, particularly in an industry which is very, very cost-focused, cost-driven. Mm. The one consultant that looks at the dollar signs is the the most maligned, mm. and, and and it's closer towards the bottom of the of the project structure than anybody else. It's 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 fascinating. But I think there's a, I think there's a psychology with that as well. Is that like if you go back to the UK, architects used to be you know the lead consultant. They were the contract administrator. They led everything, and then at some point in the in, in you know in, in in the dimness of time, they took a step back and said, "We just want to concentrate on the design." Mm. And at that point, project managers were, wasn't really a thing. Project managers kind of became more of a force later. So when there was that gap, QSE stepped forward and said, well, we'll help manage the contract. We'll do the procurement. Mm-hmm. We'll do all this other stuff. And then PMs have come along afterwards in the UK, and they've taken some of that. But that core commercial offering around procurement and around the post-contract is still very much in, 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 in the remit of the QS. Mm. Here, when a similar thing happened here and the, Q, and the architects took a step back, PMs were already here alongside the QSs, and the PMs moved forward effectively and took mm. all that stuff. And the Q, and I, I'm not saying the QS profession let it happen, but didn't necessarily put up as big a fight as perhaps it could have done. 
Yeah. But that's because PMs were a lot more prevalent here at that time. So there's a psychology with it as well. Mm. And where this is kind of developed in Australia versus when things develop like that in the UK. Yeah. So it's not a case of like necessarily curses have allowed this kind of situation to happen. I just don't think we, we as a profession have been strong enough to try and say this is the bit that we should be doing. We've kind of let others take on those roles. When you arrived from the UK, you know, did you have to change anything about your mindset or approach to how you were doing things? Well, yeah, to a certain extent. Uh, I mean, obviously, you know, technical skill is obviously part of it. But I found, you know, when I came here, I had I was I'd been a director in the UK for four years. I had to take a step down to senior cost manager here to get a job, mm-hmm. uh, and I was back measuring substructure and back measuring structure which i hadn't really done in a lot of detail in a couple of years because i was a director i was responsible for bd i was client facing so the difference in the uk is that you're a lot you're a lot more client facing a lot earlier so mm-hmm. it's it's a lot of client handholding and it's what i refer to as telling the story of trying to articulate what you are doing and why your you know your cost projections are what they are and and taking them through that whole process mm-hmm. here that that kind of wasn't happening as much and there were less meetings that we were involved in so it was almost like moving back straight back into that stepping back three or four years in a career and getting back in amongst the weeds on the technical stuff and kind of when you've moved away from it it's actually really difficult to get back into it it is it is a step back but you know in terms of carving out a life in australia that's what was required where do you think the qs industry is going I'm really excited about where the QS industry can go. I mean, I, I'm just thinking about what we talk about. There. I thought, God, it sounds very depressing. Um, <laughs> but but I, I think that there is a huge jump that the QS can make and kind of re-dominate its value within the, within the project uh, lifecycle. Mm-hmm. You've got all the stuff with digital. You've got all the stuff with 5D BIM and, and, and digital twins. And, and just talk about 5D BIM for a minute. The one thing that aggravates me about that conversation is uh, it's designers pushing it and, and government, etc. But there's so in some cases, people talk about quite like, like we, you know, Arcadis, we've got a very, very strong engineering discipline. And they say, oh, yeah, we do 5D bin. And well, I'm sitting opposite the table of them said, oh, really? So where's our conversation? And that happens with architects as well. Everyone's saying that they're doing 5D bin, but the 5D is the cost bit. Mm. So if you are not talking to a QS, how are you doing the, fa- the the cost bit of 5D bin? Yeah. Um, and little things like uh, you can't just do a model and then get a QS in. The QS has got to be there right at the start to influence how that model is built because how designers design it isn't necessarily how things get measured and how things get costed and priced by the industry. Mm-hmm. So there's an education piece there, which QSs are a little bit divorced from. So that's, that's one aspect that I think the QS can step up in and just say, no, you need us as part of the BIM setup. You need us to tell you and educate you on the best way of preparing your model so we can get maximum value out of it, which creates the value for the client all the way through to the contractor. Mm-hmm. Um, that, and then the, then you've got the digital disruption. You've got the digital twins, which is all about that asset management. You've got sustainability and carbon footprint. There are a number of aspects there that the QSE, there have been a number of specialists who look at those kind of things, like all of life, et cetera. But I think that needs to become mainstream QS services now. Mm-hmm. I think as we're, particularly from a sustainable sustainability climate perspective clients are getting more education you can see it now on a few projects but they're going to be, they're going to want that future life cycle mm-hmm. and if the qs isn't driving that conversation of we can tell you not just the construction bit is actually going to become the small bit mm-hmm. but i think you know some assets now are being 
designed for anywhere between a 25 and a 75 year life. Mm-hmm. When you think it's, if it's going to take two or three or four years to build an asset, how many more years has it got to operate, mm-hmm. right? So that's where the value is. So if we can get involved there and drive our services to be more cognizant of that thicker end of the wedge, that's where we can add a lot more value and that's where we can re-dominate ourselves within the, within the industry. Because as we move forward, as digital twins and 5D BIM do become more prevalent, the measurement bit that we're all kind of known for and has been the traditional QS is the bit that we're not going to be doing anymore. Mm. So we have to evolve ourselves. Now, in the 20 years I've been doing this job, since when I started as a graduate, I was reading articles about the death of the QS. Yeah. All these innovations were going to come up. We're not going to need a QS anymore. Well, I call bullshit then. I'm calling bullshit now. There will always be yeah. a role for the QS, but we have to evolve with where the industry is going. And we have to, if we're not leading that evolution, we are going to die as a profession. We need to be leading the charge. And there is so much good stuff that's going on in the digital twin space, in the 5D BIM space. But it needs to become more prevalent. And we as a profession shouldn't be scared of our competitors. We should be working with our competitors to drive what that new future looks like. Unfortunately, everyone's so driven to try and get a competitive edge, it's isolated. But we need it. We, we need some people to lead and then everybody else can follow. And that's what we need to do as a profession. So I am very excited about what the future holds for us as, a, as, a, as an industry, as a profession. Uh, and I think if we play our cards right and we set our stall out right, we can actually lead that evolution. So obviously you'd mentioned that, you know, the industry itself needs to be educated to, to, to what a, a, a QS does. How do we go about educating the industry in Australia? Because I want people to know what value a QS can bring. Like I was speaking to a contractor yesterday and they're really struggling to find contract administrators. And I said, have you thought about bringing a QS on board? You know, you can get a QS from a consultant background who's been seconded into multiple different contractors to do exactly what you need them to do. And straight away, they're like, no, not, not interested. So like, I, I'm king to yeah. okay. educate so, so, as well. So, so, so there's, there's another aspect to that as well, is uh, you know, my experience coming here is that when I was, when I was in the UK and I've lived in Australia 10 years now, so I hate conversations that start with in the UK, but mm. this is the point of comparison, particularly for a QS, right? When I was on the opposite side of a table from a contractor and we're doing like valuations, progress claims and variation negotiations and all the rest of it, I would generally be across the, the table from somebody who was kind of my age or older mm-hmm. and therefore experienced. And therefore, there was almost like a battle of wits to a certain extent. When I've come here and I'm dealing with contract administrators from, from contractors, probably 70% of them have been guys who've been in the industry two years. Mm. They've, no, they've never worked in the US, and yep. most of the guys in the UK are all from a QS background. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, they're, they're, they're appointed in these contract administration roles. And it's like, and for, for an, a seasoned, experienced QS, you run ring around, rings around these guys because they don't have the experience. Yep. They don't think like a QS because they're not trained as a QS. So that's a different aspect as well. We're going to say uh, how the industry is different. But in terms of you know, educating the industry, we need. Organizations like ROCS and like the IQS to actually get their act together to a certain extent. And I'm sure if you go and ask them, they'll say that they have, but you know, proofs in the pudding, right? We, they need to be batting for us as a, as a profession and mm. going to government and going speaking to clients. I think as soon as you get something like government on side with what the, that value is in terms of the full discipline, not just the piecemeal selection of services. 
that will actually drive a lot of that education as well. Mm-hmm. But really, it one client uh, one client at a time, and and for all of us, uh, you know, we try and take the approach that a lot of our competitors do. You're actually trying to find the clients who are probably a bit more savvy and probably a little bit more open minded and will believe you when you tell them this is what we can do for you, Mr. Client. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of clients out there who believe they know best and based on their experience, they perhaps do. But, you know, I've had, I've had one project manager in the past say, I don't believe in the QS model. Like mm-hmm. it's a procure choice. <laughs> and it's, yeah. right, okay. Um, and, and so there are a number of attitudes that's only going to get changed over time. That's only going to change when we have professions like RICS and bodies like IAQS batting for us as a profession and we're all trying to have similar conversations with our clients Mm. we've been you know like asia for example they they procure their qs's in a very very similar there are a number of differences but broadly they procure their qs in a similar manner to manner to the uk Mm -hmm. so when asian clients sending us an rfp one of the questions they always ask is oh can you do the procurement management because in the asia that's what the qs does Mm -hmm. done by the pm and I've had, I've seen responses to those RFQs where our, our competitors said, "No, we don't do that." But well, why don't? Why aren't we doing that? We should be doing that because it's mm-hmm. money, yeah. Or at least we should have a greater involvement in that process than perhaps we are doing at the moment. Because we're always saying that procurement is isn't done that great here. We're always saying that the procurement is a vehicle to you know deliver cost certainty and deliver risk certainty for a client. Here, procurement gets selected based on whatever's in trend, whether it's DNC or ECI. And, and mm-hmm. I think in the 10 years I've been here, I've been in a procurement workshop to actually work out what the procurement route should be. I think I've done it twice. And that's usually when I find myself in a position where I can actually lead that discussion. In the UK, it was every job. Mm-hmm. There was a procurement decision. So there's a number of things that just seem to have fallen away here. And I'm not sure of the reasons why. But yeah, the, the education piece of clients is getting better. Mm-hmm. It's better now than it was. 10 uh, when I first joined, uh, you know, when I first moved to Brisbane. Yeah. I'm finding I can have those better, more meaningful conversations with clients, whereas like seven, eight years ago, it just wasn't going to happen. But it is still only with certain clients. Not every client is thinking the same way yet. So it's going to take time. I think, like, on my perspective, the beauty about a quantity surveying degree or a quantity surveying role is that there are so many different avenues that you can explore from that yeah. you know from as you as you'd mentioned quantity surveying you can maybe end up in project management quantity surveying can end up in procurement um management uh, client side. yeah there, there's so many fact, different in fact there's probably a number of people now who i know who i work with and, and grew up with training with who there are a number of them now who are in completely different roles and some of them are working directly client side Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I've always been an advocate that the best project managers are the ones who had not necessarily have been a QS, but certainly have had some kind of other discipline first, whether that's mm-hmm. architectural or engineering, because they get to see the whole process yep. from a particular angle and they can use that experience to, you know, for the betterment of the project when they're, in a, when, when they're in, in, in a PM role. And some of the best PMs I've worked with have been QSs. Um, mm-hmm. I also worked with some PMs who were QSs who were bloody awful. That's um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, true. Around a bit. I guess when you're um, obviously you're the, the the national cost director, so you're obviously responsible for developing culture and building teams and 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 and, and that sort of thing. How, how do you go about building a high performing culture, Matthew? 
Okay, so I'm 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 big on the whole um on the whole culture thing, mainly because I've worked at a number of firms that will remain nameless where I don't think the culture was that uh, I don't think the culture was that great. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I've seen what it does in terms of churn. I've seen what it does in terms of morale. And if you want if you want your business to hit your targets and exceed your targets, you've got to take everybody on the same journey that they're all moving in the same direction and they're all in support of one another not mm-hmm. all in the, you know having a, having ambition is great there's no reason why you can't be ambitious and work with everybody and everybody lifts everybody else up mm-hmm. rather than i'm ambitious i need to walk all over everybody else mm-hmm. to get to where i need to get to absolutely so some of it some of it's almost like it's not strict this but like personality profiling where you want to make sure you get the right people with the right attitude mm-hmm. That's part of it. Do, are they going to fit culturally? And so far, you know, I'd say we've been 90, 90% successful with that. Mm-hmm. Um, and the people who don't fit culturally, you know, they work out pretty quickly that they're not going to fit culturally and they generally move themselves on. But, uh, but yeah, a lot of it is that open communication. There are probably, to my detriment, there, there's no secrets within the team. Uh, you know, while, while if something happens within the team, we'll communicate it but pretty quickly, maybe not straight away because of a number of different issues, but we'll always try and communicate it to the team. So there's no surprises for anybody. Mm-hmm. Um, when we're, you know, when we're bidding projects, we try and get everybody's input into it, whether they're down as, you know, the, the graduate all the way up to, you know, the associate director and the director. Everybody has an input to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's out, you know, we've got, we've got national monthly meetings where we, you know, we talk about innovation and we have guest speakers in, we just started running them now. We've got uh, quarterly updates where we say, well, this is the plan that we set out. This is where we are on that plan. This is where we're, set, where we're sitting. This is our performance today on things like availability and revenue and all the rest of it. And and here's how we're trying to drive innovation. Here's uh, the latest thing. Here's, what the, here's the input from, from the client. Here's where clients said we need to improve. All that gets put on the table. Mm-hmm. And so that's, you know, that, that's one half of it. That's all very, very positive. When things go wrong, it's also making sure that people feel like they're supported and feel that they're protected to a certain extent yeah. and then if something goes wrong with the client that, that you have their back mm-hmm. uh, and obviously if they've made a mistake it's all about the honesty uh, mm-hmm. and there's anybody on our team who who would not admit to making a mistake on something and uh, and and just if everyone feels like they're safe as in you know we have meetings and we have discussions and we've got the graduates arguing with me and the other directors and no, not in an aggressive way. You know, yeah. it, people are, you know can have the right to disagree, but everyone walks out of the meeting. Nobody's upset with anybody because yeah. it's a difference of opinion. And then it's about making sure that if this person feels that they're right, what's their argument feeling right? And again, that that has benefits and um, disbenefits as well. Is that sometimes you get to the point you think, God, I wish people would do what I ask them to do. <laughs> uh, and, but when you create this culture, you also have people feel like they have a right reply so that they will always say, well, I actually, I disagree with this for these reasons. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you get to bite your tongue because you say, well, that's the culture that we want. So even though I'm not feeling it's in my best interest to have this open culture, you've still got to la- allow it to play out because you can't have, yeah, let's say, let's, everyone has an opinion until it doesn't suit you. And then you say, no, no, this is it. This is the structure that you've got to listen to me because I'm, I'm the boss. You know, I do my best to, to try and, you know, regardless of title, regardless of structure, to make it as flat as possible from a culture perspective, because that's where people start feeling safe, mm-hmm. and that's where people start feeling empowered, and that's where people, when you bring out an initiative like like some of the stuff that we're doing, people want to get engaged in it. 
yep. rather than, oh, it's something else you want me to do. People feel like they're all, they all want to work towards the same, uh, the same goal. And, you know, it does create a bit of a family feel to it, but it also means people do fall out with each other. You know, they do get upset with, with maybe an approach or an attitude or something that's said, but a couple of days later, we're on a conference call, everyone's fine. Yeah, there's no bitterness. There's no. I've got to put that person down. It's it, it's uh, you know it's emotionally can be emotionally draining, but the benefits far more than you know outweigh the disadvantages to it. Yeah, well, if you're if you're hiding things and if you're keeping your feelings closed off, it, you'll probably find that those people who, who don't say anything just end up leaving, and 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 it's exactly it, yeah exactly yeah yeah yeah. And and I want you know we, we had um it's an incident this week actually. Uh, we've had one of our good guys who we didn't want to lose, he decided that he felt that he had to move to get exposure to other things. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we disagreed with him. We said, we think you can get all that here. And we tried to lay out a plan of, well, this is what we can do for you. And I said to him, I said, all right, give us six months. Give us six months to see if we can hit this stuff for you. And mm-hmm. if we can't, or you don't feel like we have, I'll help you find a better job. Mm-hmm. Because I would rather people leave for something better yeah. And feel like they have to leave and potentially take a sideways step. Yeah. Now, I think where he's potentially going is a sideways step. That's my opinion. He doesn't think so. But I would, and I've, since, since that conversation, I've said it to everybody else in the team. I said, well, if, if you feel like we're not doing it for you, if you feel like your, your career's been held back or you could move on quicker somewhere else for whatever reason, come and have the conversation with us. And if you're adamant about leaving, we'll help you find a better job. Mm-hmm. because you know we know all our competitors we know people in the industry we can set that up and i would rather help somebody get a better job somewhere else that's going to suit them rather than just take potentially the first thing that comes along and accept it because it's different and the grass is greener and all that kind of yeah is he going to stick around no he's he, he's going to go and <laughs> give it a go uh yeah. I, you know we did because he'd accepted he felt like he should honor it yeah um, that kind of person and, you know, fair play to him. We have said to him that if you don't think it works out, he's working out, give us a call. Yeah. Um, because that actually happened to me. I actually, um, I, I had a bit of a career pivot early on in Australia where I uh, I decided I wasn't liking the work. I wasn't liking the culture of the business, but I wasn't liking also what we said before about the position of the QS in the industry. And I thought, this is just, this is just crap. I don't like this. This is not what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. So I said, I'm going to career pivot. And I went to a tier one builder. Mm-hmm. And I left six weeks later. Understand mm. it? Yeah, <laughs> it was even worse. And I ended up actually calling my old employer. I looked around, couldn't find anything. It was in that lull just after the um, the, the mining boom. Mm-hmm. Uh, I couldn't really find anything, so I ended up calling my old employer back and just said, "Well, it hasn't worked out. It's coming back an option." And they said, "We'd love to have you back." And, and I think that, that that's it. Like the, the grass, is, the, for me, the grass isn't always greener. And I always tell candidates that. And I'll tell them like you're, you're going to struggle to find anything better than where you're at at the moment. And there, there's so many things that you can value that that's not just salary or or, 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 yeah. or projects. You know, it's the people you work with every day. You know, it, it's the environment, the culture, all of that matters so so much. But I guess obviously on that as well, when you're looking to, to bring people on board or join your team, what, what are the three non-negotiable characteristics that, that they must possess for you? Uh, you know what? I've never, really, I've never really thought about it because it, it does come down to a bit of a gut feel. It, it comes down to how is this person presenting. And at the end of the day, you want somebody who's challenging is not the right word, but you want somebody to be forceful in their convictions to a certain extent, yep. but without being you know, aggressively ambitious. 
anybody who's who starts a conversation as in like, well, what are you going to pay me? What jobs am I going to be working on? If all the questions are I, 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 which is a candidate, you know, you can kind of understand. But there's a way of approaching that conversation. You know, it's, it's, it is down to their experience to a certain extent. I do get a lot of people applying for, when I advertise for QS, I do have a lot of people who've got commercial management in their title applying mm-hmm. for it. and They've never been a QS in their life. There aren't like, just in terms of like recruitment of like graduates, for example, there aren't a lot of graduates coming out of university at the moment. And the ones that are, are usually tied up because they've got a, you know, a cadetship with another firm. So we've actually started broadening the lens a little bit, in ter- you know, widening the gaze a little bit in terms of the kind of people who go after. And we've got a couple of people who are not coming from traditional QS backgrounds in terms mm-hmm. of their degrees, but it's how they're presented. Because as we move more and more away from real technical measurement, Mm-hmm. And it's more about pricing. It's more about market engagement. It's more about that one-on-one with the client and how you present mm-hmm. your findings and present your forecast to the client and that communication piece. That is becoming the the big thing. The, the, yeah. the technical skills we can give people, we, we can train people upon that. But in terms of that being able to engage with the client, if somebody really doesn't want to engage with the client, that's, they're going to find their career a little bit harder, I think. Because it is going to become, uh, can you sit in front of an architect? Can you sit in front of a project manager? Can you sit in front of the client? Can you have a conversation and and, and drive people in a team to achieve something? Mm-hmm. Um, and because they're the kind of people who are going to move forward in their career. Plus, anybody who would like to do any kind of BD, and I'm cautious about using the phrase BD because everybody instantly thinks sales and everybody gets scared of it. But for me, BD is building a network and going meeting people and mm. chatting. And, and if you are, if you're open and you're personable and you don't mind meeting people, <laughs> I mean, you, you've, got, you've got the tools of the trade right there. Yeah. Um, the sales bit can come later. I'm not even interested in that bit. But it's just about being able to communicate. Uh, yeah. If I had to sum, sum it up into a couple of words, it's being able to communicate. Yeah, I think communication skills are so undervalued in, in many ways with a lot mm. of companies. And, and you could get someone who's fabulous with regards to their, their communication skills but there might be a few things lacking, you know, yeah, and that's I mean, why we're we're, um, we're we're a very small, still, you know, a relatively small team, and we've got some se- really good senior guys who are very good at the client facing stuff. As we grow, we don't want to have the same three, four, five, eight guys seeing clients and a, an army of people in the office just you know, churning out yeah. the work. We want to be able to show a client that there's depth to the team, and even if that's the cadet and the graduate in a meeting, and they can interact to an extent. Not obviously not on everything with the technical skill and knowledge gap and all the rest of it. But if they can engage in a conversation, you want to show the client we've got a team. Mm. That, you know that, that if, if you have a problem and you can get older me, you should have confidence to bring the grant to at least find out what the next step should be. Yeah, um, and it's about introducing. It used to be a case of like the number of people who were not client facing was actually a lot higher in traditional QS practices. I think that's going to change. I think that dynamic has to be is that you want the majority of your people to be client-facing. Now, mm-hmm. not everybody's going to be client-facing. Not everybody wants to be client-facing or has that necessarily, the, the, those, uh, per, those personal skills. And that's fine. There's still a place for them within a business. But mm-hmm. I do think the tide is switching the other way that you want to have as many touch points with the client as possible. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So... You're obviously uh, extremely busy with uh, the, the what you do day to day, and obviously the 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 networking group that that you've established, yeah. uh, Matthew. So, what 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 does a typical day sort of look like for you? Is it completely 
all over the place or is it rather sort of regimented? No, it's all over the place. Yeah. Um, I usually start off the day, you know, if I can, I'll go and do, I'll do some form of exercising, like go for a walk, go for a run, something like that, just to try and clear the head in the morning, depending on how late I've been the night before. Um, <laughs> uh, and yeah, I usually have a plan of what I, uh, what I want to try and set out to do. Mm-hmm. Usually by about 9.30, that plans out the window and yeah. I'm, because things happen. You get you know bids come in. You you know somebody wants to have a catch up with the organisation like Arcadis. There's a lot of internal catch ups, not just within our team but other disciplines as well. We've got all those touch points as well. Things like Property Leaders Brisbane. That's the stuff that I do on the side, and some of the in- initiatives that I'm involved on within in Arcadis are also kind of done on the side. As we like to refer to it, the Magic Hour. Mm-hmm. I probably do more hours in the Magic Hour than I do nine to five. Yeah, but, that, but that's my choice because I see the value in it and mm-hmm. and I see the personal benefit for it as well. But yeah, there, there's no yeah, there, there's no straightforward day. Every day tends to be different. Different sets of problems do arise. Sometimes it's the same problem over and over again. You just want to bang your head against a wall. But I would love to tell you what a t- typical day is because but, uh, I, I, I I love that though you know because it gives it means that there's so much variety in what you're doing. Yeah. No, no two yeah. days the same. You're up. It's gonna you you know the day is gonna be a challenge no no matter what. Um, but just once, just once, I would think right. I need to get this finished this morning, and get it issued, and then two days later, I'm still further the way through it. I'm like, I would <laughs> just like just once, and, and I've been reading an article that says you should have a. I forgot what they called it now. Something like you should have a, an untouchable day where mm. you just block it out and you don't answer emails, you don't mm. answer you know your team's calls or your phone. You just get the stuff done that you need to do. And it sounds great, doesn't it? It sounds absolutely awesome. Unfortunately, I already have two hundred and fifty unread emails in my inbox, and that oh. just increases week by week. So um, I know. I'm not sure that's an option. <laughs> have you read the book uh, Deep Work by Carl Newport? No, he, I haven't. No. Uh, you should check that out. It's it's pretty good. And it's all yeah. about how, how to you know do deep work and, and focus in on specific tasks. That brings me on to how do you get balance? Obviously, you're 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 doing do, doing a lot. Do 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 you get much time to you know focus on a, a, any hobbies or interests or, or 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 create that balance that most of us need? I think it's dangerous using that that term balance, um, because. It kind of implies a split, doesn't it? You know, mm. Well, this is why this is why I do work, and this is where I live. I really enjoy my job. I enjoy the people I interact with. I enjoy the people on the team. I enjoy the clients that we have. I enjoy the initiatives that we're doing. So I never really consider it work. And I know that's not for everybody. Not everybody's necessarily lucky enough to have that perspective because they're not always in. And I don't always enjoy what I'm doing, but I still, in the in the main, enjoy what I do. But um, it is important to make sure that you switch off. Mm-hmm. So I've, like, over the Christmas holidays, I just read voraciously, which I hadn't done in a while and yeah. really enjoyed, making sure that when I'm switching off, I'm switching off and I'm spending time with the kids and playing games with the kids and all that kind of thing. Me and my son started playing hockey, field hockey, uh, two or three years ago, and I absolutely love it. And I'm mm-hmm. desperate for the hockey season to start because that's where I go and do something completely different. I, I used to do a lot of... Yeah, you know, I still work late now. If I'm working late now, it's usually because there's an impending deadline, or if I've got, you know, been a global business, I'm on a lot of global calls. Pretend if it's with the UK, usually fall into the evening, so that can be a bit a bit of a strain. But I'm I'm making sure that if I can leave the office early, I'm leaving the office early because the hours are getting done mm-hmm. anyway. 
and just making sure that when I switch off, I switch off. I'm not picking up the laptop at the weekend just to respond to a few things. And whereas I didn't used to do that. I used to just any opportunity where I was bored, I'll, I'll just go and do this. I'll just go and send those emails. I'll just go yeah. and finish that report. And I think particularly over the last couple of years, I've, I've found that by doing that, you get to about October, November, and I'm absolutely burnt out. I'm mm. just exhausted. And my enthusiasm levels drop. Yeah. And it's a, it's a bit of a struggle. And you've still got to deliver stuff because you've got people relying on you, you've got clients relying on you, you've got your team relying on you. So you still get it done, but it's just not with the same burden, the same zip mm. that you may have done three, four months earlier. So having that reset, making sure we're having trips away rather than, oh, I can't afford to take two or three days because we've got this and we've got that. There's always something. Yep. So it's just making sure you can build that resilience around you as a team so that you know the world's not going to fall apart if you're going to go away for a few days. And no team should be that reliant on one person. I, I want to, within Arcadis, I want to build a team that you know, if I decided I want to do something else and move on, that it's going to survive. Mm-hmm. Um, plenty of people in the industry want to see something burn when they've left because they knew they were the glue <laughs> all together. I don't want that. That's not yeah. good for anybody. And it doesn't create um, growth for anybody. No, I, I agree totally. Three more questions to, to, fi- to finish <laughs> off the show. Quick fire questions. If you could have dinner with, with one person, dead or alive, who, who would it be? Oh, God. I really should have reread these questions before. <laughs> Actually, uh, Simon Sinek. Oh, yeah? I'm not sure if you're, you're familiar yep. with him. He does a lot of stuff about leadership and stuff. I read his stuff and listen to his podcast massively. Mm-hmm. I would love to have dinner with that guy. He's certainly fascinating. He's got some some great advice. And yeah. yeah. Uh, he's, he's a great leader within the uh, professional development world. What one book or film has changed your, your view on the world? Ah, oh, probably one that I read at Christmas, actually. I've read a lot of fiction and trying to remember one now that has uh, changed my view on the world is changing my view on the world is a big thing. Yeah, I know. But, uh, but the one thing that probably changed my perspective on a few things was uh, given, I think I put it on LinkedIn as well, a uh, give and take by, um, by Adam Grant. And it was about how we talked about it before about ambitious people and how, you know, some ambitious people will walk over others to get to where they want to get to. Adam Grant's book talks about, by having an attitude of giving and targeted giving is probably the better way of putting it, being sure where you are, where you are being open and giving to people that in the long run will do more for your career than, than taking. Mm-hmm. And, you know, takers, as he refers to it, kind of move quickly, but then get stuck. Mm-hmm. Givers just keep moving through. And it's just very, very fascinating. And as you, as I was reading it, I'm thinking of people I've worked with on both scales and thinking, oh, yeah, that matches up with that kind of approach. And that person is definitely that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just kind of kind of bounced a lot of things for me in terms of where I saw myself and actually rethinking a little bit more. Okay, I always thought that like the property leader stuff, I did that for very, very selfish reasons. Mm. And I think I did, at the start I did. I think it was for very, very selfish. It was about me, my network. What can I get out of it? I've been doing it eight years now. So what I could get out of it was probably right at the start. I'm now doing it now because of what it gives back to the industry and the stuff I'm trying to do with the RICS and the stuff that I'm trying to do with I'm on one of the PCA committees as well. For me, that's all about giving back now. It's not mm-hmm. just about me and my career. It's about what can I do for the betterment of the industry, betterment for the profession, because I do see real potential and real growth opportunities and stuff. So, yeah, so that, reading that book kind of rebalanced a lot of things for me. Excellent. 
I know this was the quick fire, but I've I've realised that you don't do quick fire, so don't. don't. No, 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 no. I'll I'll, I'll do the next one quick fire. (laughs) One thing you could change about the industry, what would it be? The position of the QS in the um, in 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 the hierarchy of a project. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, I think um, you're, you're doing a lot to, to, to help promote that and, and, and develop that and change that. And thanks for being a part of this this podcast today, Matthew, because that's that's a, a small little chunk to, to helping others see what, what QSs can do out there within the within the world of, of, of construction. If there's anyone who wants to reach out to maybe join the, the property leaders yep. um, networking group, um, is the best way to, to, to communicate via LinkedIn? Yeah, just just connect with me on LinkedIn. There's a Property Leaders Brisbane website, uh, propertyleadersbrisbane.org. There's a company page on LinkedIn. There's if you're, if you're on Castbox or Apple or Spotify, there's the the Shovel Podcast, which is from Property Leaders. So there's a number of different ways of finding more about it. But if people want to reach out to me for something uh, more specific, then yeah, just uh, message me on LinkedIn. And we'll take it from there. Well, thanks for being part of this today, Matthew. That was great. No worries. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to Measured with me, Mick Donaghy. Our goal with this podcast is to create a community of construction professionals from a variety of backgrounds and experiences to develop, learn and grow together. As a business, our aim with Franklin and Smith is to become the most respected pre-construction and quantity surveying recruitment agency in Australia within the next five years. Thereafter, our goal is to build a 100-year company that outlives us as owners, but lives on in the careers and legacy projects we recruit for. Listening to this podcast is being a small part of that journey, and we are forever thankful for your time. If you'd like to connect further with our ever-growing community, check out the measured Facebook and LinkedIn pages, as well as our new YouTube channel. This is where we'll be posting the long version of this episode, as well as short snippets of inspiration over the coming weeks. Thanks for listening to Measured. Catch you next time.